Hello, folks. Welcome to another episode of the TFC Audio Project. In this episode of Shop Talk, Mike and I talk about the history of footwear. The shoes that humans are wearing in 2018 are a big part of why so many are faced with foot-specific issues, and to understand why we wear some of the weird shoes we see today, we saw no better place to start than doing some research on when humans started wearing shoes and why they started wearing them. Some pretty shocking facts and definitely insightful information as to the origins of some of the foot-deforming shoes we still wear today. This episode is sponsored by TFC Seminars. The seminars are six-hour education experience designed to help you understand why feet are important, why so many people in 2018 are having problems with their feet, how to restore optimal foot function, restoring ankle and hip mobility, preventing running injuries, how to use walking as an ankle and hip mobility exercise, what to look for in footwear, and lots more. We do our best to include lots of playful movement and drills during the session and to be moving for the majority um, so, you can't, so you can not only learn but also feel uh, what we're trying to teach. So you can check out thefootcollective.com or tfc-shop.com to get more info on our 2019 seminar dates or to register for a session. They're open to anyone, including health professionals, personal trainers, physicians, or just people having issues with their body that aren't being given the right information on restoring optimal function, eliminating pain, and preventing future injuries, because that's not too much to ask for. This episode is also sponsored by our travel partner, Nanook Protective Hard Cases, which we use to transport gear for our seminars and workshops. They make super high quality cases. They're all built, uh, they're all made in Canada, and you can keep your electronics safe during travel and rest assured that they're not going to get broken or tossed around. You can check out their cases at nanook.com, N-A-N-U-K.com. That's it for sponsors, so let's dig into this episode. Hope you enjoy. It's the TFC Audio Project. It's a collective effort. Help people understand their bodies, starting at the feet are the gateway for people to see that there's an issue. You know, a foot conversation is always a whole body conversation. Three, two, one. Hey folks, Nick and Mike here for another episode of Shop Talk. Um, today's episode, we're going to talk about the history of footwear. Footwear is really, um, it's a very interesting topic from a couple different standpoints. Uh, first of which is because it's a really major element in why so many people are having foot-specific issues, and it actually has a very interesting um, interesting history to it. So we're going to go from the very beginning of the first pair of shoes that were found, and we're going to bring it all the way um, to modern-day footwear, and at the end have more of kind of a conceptual conversation about um, things that we see in footwear, where the footwear industry needs to go, and the potential of, of actually creating good human footwear, um, but to start with, let's talk about um, let's start with the the history of shoes. So the very first pair of shoes that were found is probably a good place for us to start, and they were found um, fifty five hundred years ago, I think, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they were found in Armenia. Actually, they're called the uh, Arini One Shoe. They labeled them because it was in a cave they found it. Cool. Um, and these were basically leather leather bound shoes, very soft, and um, that kind of fitted the shape of a foot uh, and they were kind of laced up with uh, with twine like material and they they found them preserved so so they those are one of the first examples of a shoe and and I think it's interesting to note and I because a lot of anthropologists point to why were shoes first worn mm-hmm. and the the answer to that that you get is is for protection and and it, and it's protection from from the environment so from cold from textures of the environment um, from things that might penetrate your foot. So this is a prime example of something that was just put over your foot mm-hmm. yeah, to it's protect clothing. it from stuff. Footwear is a piece of clothing, right? And like you said, we put it on our bodies 
to protect our bodies from damage in the environment. It was a functional piece of clothing used from the standpoint of one purpose. Put something on your foot to protect it from damage. Exactly. And that that's super interesting because doing the research on this podcast, that theme it kind of shows up multiple different times mm-hmm. of, okay, are, are the footwear first designed for protection? Where did we go astray with that? And that's what we're going to get to. But but I think it's it's worth noting that that is the, the primary thing that that they're meant for. And it should still be the primary thing, right? It like should that's, still be the primary thing. That's what thing. we talk about in our seminars. The footwear from the standpoint of functional footwear that you wear for activity, that you wear for moving around, walking every day. The purpose of that footwear is to protect your foot from damage, right? Your foot is a sensor. It's supposed to take in sensory input from the environment around you, just like your eyes. And that's a precious tool, right? That's a precious piece of your body that if it gets damaged, you know, if you, I, it, I've sliced my foot up pretty good. I remember one year we had, uh, we played some beach volleyball, sliced my f- a huge gash in my foot and it sucked because it's not like, oh, my, f- my foot got sliced up and there's stitches. So I'll just walk on my hands. It's like, it's disruptive. So it's, it's in your best interest to protect that body part because it does a lot right? It's you have to use them every day in order to be functional and move around. So and I guess it also depends on where you are in the world too. So based on the environment that you're currently currently in. So I would say it's probably more important for people like cold was a big factor too. So I mean, walking around on on ice all day with bare feet is a little, little crazy. And uh, no things like frostbite and stuff like that. So a lot of these northern places around the world use these shoes for for simply protection from cold and again you could you could use the same logic and reasoning for for other environments um so the the purpose being to protect you from whatever given environment you're in and using as much or as, li- or as little as you need to protect you in that environment well even the um like braxton um the, the guy in hawaii the shoemaker in hawaii that we're working with and will continue to work with his kukini sandal is really based on the design of Hawaiian people using something to protect their foot from volcanic rock, which is very, very jagged, very sharp. So they essentially go. took a piece of leather, put it under their foot, and took some leather laces and strapped it so that it was fixed to their foot. And that was literally all they wanted just to protect their foot from getting sliced up and cut up so that they could run, exactly. um, so that they could run, so that they could walk over all these very um, jagged textures, but protect their feet. That's the, the definition of functional. They... If you think about somebody walking around on jagged rocks, they're going to yeah. be treading very slowly, yeah. right? And it's like, now we put this thing on our foot and it allows us to actually locomote and, and run and maneuver a lot quicker on the given environment, which is very, it serves a function. It's functional. So, so And I it reduces that, reduces your injury risk. Mm-hmm. That's another thing, right? That's like, that was the primary focus. And we've, you know, we'll, we'll kind of get into where footwear forked because it seems to have diverged pretty... Um, in a ma- in a very major way, from functional footwear to footwear that was oriented towards fashion, and I think that line now is sometimes blurry for some people. But let's talk about where this started. So, in the research, this same thing happened in multiple different societies and places around the world at similar similar times throughout history. So, you said it. So the the change I think happened where fashion got intertwined with footwear Mm -hmm. and fashion is an interesting concept because like what is fashion it's not just trying to look good it's it's pretty it's a very pretty deep concept when you think about it so Mm -hmm. what i found when doing the research is that fashion is very intertwined with power with status sex appeal and with sex appeal so those are kind of some of the major players when it comes to 
fashion. So, so footwear started to turn into basically a communication tool, right? It's like, yeah, it's like when uh, you're in the military, you wear badges to indicate status. You wear it's a, you know, the clothing you wear on your body and the badges that you have are an, are a communication tool to tell people your status or where you fit into the hierarchy. And it's almost like footwear started to turn into a method of communication for your status and so the function of the footwear became irrelevant it was like i just want to wear this to differentiate myself from other groups of people exactly and this is where from what i found is that like even some examples three thousand years ago in egypt so that's where they found that narrow and pointy shoes were worn by by women specifically (laughs) and this was to make the foot actually look more slender and actually become more slender specifically. And the reason being... Wow, so it was to actually change the shape of the foot. Change the shape of the foot and the change of the look of the foot when they were wearing the shoes. The reason being, it was to distinguish them from splayed feet of the common women who um, who were working in the fields. So they call them the common women or the slaves working in the fields who had very splayed and wide feet. So, so that's one example of, you know, where, where things started to change from, from just purely function to to actually fashion or distinguishing things, Romans sought footwear as a sign of of power. So, so they looked at um, you know, based on the footwear you were wearing, it was it was a sign of where you were in society. So a lot of the slaves, and that's a very common theme through all of this, and we'll touch on that a little bit more deeply. But common theme is that powerful people started to wear these these shoes and footwear that strayed far away from their initial purpose which was the protection and the the poor people the slaves the the people who were not uh, of high uh, rank in society happened to first of all they were in a lot of cases they weren't even allowed to wear the, the shoes that the other people were wear to were wearing but they were they were wearing shoes for the purpose of protection still throughout history <laughs> that's it, hilarious it's, it's very weird because when you're working in a field or you're moving stuff around or carrying shit like you can't wear this these status the status footwear you can't deform your foot and make it narrower because you literally cannot move around and that was another thing I, I kind of came across is like in the Victorian era when people wore shoes that were pointed and elevated they couldn't walk normally I saw one thing that literally said some women in the Victorian era would wear shoes that were so high and so pointed that they had to have two peasants and and uh, people around them to help them walk well yeah that, <laughs> that's actually that's interesting there. That's an example of a high heel, which maybe we can t- talk about next. But there's a, I think you're talking about the Chopin shoe. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. It's an exaggerated platform and they, they vary from six inches to up to 30 inches in height. Yeah. That's so crazy. So, They're stilts basically. So at one point there, there was a law trying to put a limit on how high you could wear these Chopins and the um, people just didn't abide by those laws and they just get, they got higher and higher and higher. <laughs> so they were on these 30 inch platforms just trying to kind of make their way around as best they could without falling over. And and one of those aspects, it talked about how women would wear these Chopins as like a same thing as a status symbol, right? Like if you were a woman and you towered over everyone else, it was like you were like royalty or you were um, higher in the hierarchy and you looked down on everyone else physically. Uh, but also that symbolized like that, that it just reinforced that hierarchy and it was this thing where it's i find it so funny it's like you diverge to wearing things that are completely non-functional so that if there was like a storm the people that get eaten up by the storm are the people that can't move and so it's just you know in the back of my brain i never want to wear stuff on my feet that i can't like blast into a run if i had to no right and this is like a totally 
<laughs> it's like a beautiful demonstration. And if anyone wants to know what a Chopin looks like, look it up on Google. It is shocking some of these shoes that they wear. Um, weren't they worn for a certain period of time to actually protect their dresses and stuff like that too? I think that was linked to it. So, but again, so linked to another part of fashion. But I think that's it. Let's talk about high heels because those are a prime example of like, not necessarily high heels, but like the biggest platform imaginable. Yeah. And like you said, high heels, they've been present throughout time. And some of the earliest they've they've found um, showed up in the as early as the 10th century. But really, they've kind of... And it was men and women, right? Men and women at, at first. But but really, they, they came into popularity more in the uh, closer towards the 16th century and really into the 17th century. Hmm. Um, That's not that long ago. <laughs> it, it really isn't that long ago. And they came about uh, through through royalty. So royalty tended to, to wear them to, to look taller, like you had mentioned. Hmm. Um, so tall is linked to, to power. Yeah. Um, now, they've found examples in uh, of, of tribal societies um, far further back in history that that actually the chief of the tribe would wear these like stilt things on their feet. Um, and it was only the the chief of the tribe that was allowed to wear these stilts and everybody else in the tribe were not allowed to wear these stilts. Wow. And again, the purposes of that was just to distinguish them as being the most powerful and not the highest status in that tribe. Hmm. So it, it's like, again, it comes from a, v- a variety of different societies, cultures, backgrounds throughout history. But but this, this being taller thing is intimately lim- linked to the the heel the platform the the still just wanting to be higher mm-hmm. and using footwear as a way to actually like physically get you higher above, yeah. like and, and lo- make you look more powerful well you even see this now like I'll, I'll you know people on instagram will send me pictures of random shit um and you see a lot of these things that are created now it's like guys if you want to be two inches taller stick this in your shoe it doesn't look like you have any heel lift but it makes you two inches taller He's like, if you, and, and it's just so funny how they appeal to guys wanting to seem taller, um, you know, to attract a mate. Like it's a, it's a, it's a, um, or to seem more powerful or whatever, yeah, or it is. whatever it is. Like there's remnants of this really old, ancient, silly shit that we've done in the past. There's remnants of that today to the point where when I go barefoot and move around, you know, when I was going barefoot through the airport, when we went to China, people look at you like you're a peasant. They're like, mm-hmm. ew, that's gross. That Can that person afford shoes? Like it's, no, exactly. It, they don't realize that I'm, I'm just not wearing shoes because I don't like wearing shoes. I like my feet to work properly. Oh, exactly. So, I mean, with high heels, they became popularized in, the, in that 16th century. Queen Mary of England was one of the most notable wearers of these of these high heels. Catherine mm-hmm. of Medici, Queen of France. So they're, they're both notable um you know, people who who actually really popularized uh, these types of things, and they were looked up to. They were like the status symbols of society. So, huh. so really, um, it, that's where that really kind of started the blast of popularity through that 17th century, and it and it went it went crazy. And like we were talking about before, so it was men and women who were wearing <laughs> heels um, for purposes of of again fashion linked to these this wanting to look more powerful to to being uh, of higher status in society. But it's interesting because if you look even at um, at England, the they actually had this like this rule, legisl- legislative rules to distinguish like what are people allowed to wear. And what I found was that one half inch was for, for commoners. Okay, so that was all you're allowed to wear. One inch for the bourgeois, one and a half inch for the knights. 
two inches for the nobles and two and a half, two and a half inches for the princes. Um, <laughs> and there, so there's actually laws passed. Now, if you were of a, a peasant, you were actually not allowed to, to wear heels. So there was, there was like physical, there was laws passed that, that prevented you from wearing this. And based on the class wow. you were at in society. So that was a structured hierarchy it was based structured, on your shoes. Structured hierarchy. And there's examples of this in other societies too that, again, back to the chiefs and, and other uh, sources I found is that Higher class, you're allowed to wear them. Lower class, you aren't even allowed to wear them. There's there's laws and there's there's actually penalties that that were um, that were in place preventing you from wearing high high heel shoes. Wow. Or certain types of shoes, but oftentimes it was the high heel shoes. Wow, so, that's so interesting. Okay, so that was that was kind of the history of heels, and as we know, I mean they're still very pervasive today, and and I think very few people know the true consequences in terms of what it does to your physiology, what it does to your foot even. Although they, a lot of times these people see it. They look down, they got these mangled feet that start to look like pointed shoes and they don't seem to make the connection of my shoes are actually what's causing my problem. Yeah, and, and when you look back in, in history, these a lot of these shoes that were, were actually very compressive in nature were like the goal of those people was to actually change the shape of the shoe, like we had mentioned. Wow. So the same concepts apply today. It's like if your shoe is, is physically compressing your foot, that's a big reason why your foot gets adapted and, and shaped that way over time. And 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 again, it's it's really related to the intertwining of fashion through this all. Well, people are now getting um, surgery on their feet to literally make their feet be fit better into shoes that aren't shaped like human feet right yeah. like this whole cinderella surgery where you get a bunionectomy you, sh- you literally shave off part of your first big toe joint in order to let your feet fit into heels um this is so crazy you know i mean obviously we're we're not women right and, and that's what people say oh you women always say that oh you don't understand you're not a woman it's like yeah i know i'm not a woman but I'm a health advocate. I try and get people to understand how to not have messed up bodies because I see we, we see people all the time with really mangled feet and it gives them problems upstream, right? Like you're literally inhibiting your foundation from functioning like it should. And okay, maybe you don't give a shit about your feet. Maybe it's worth destroying your feet for what you perceive as achieving a, a look that's fashionable or, or for whatever reason you're emotionally connected to that look. But you need to understand that your knees and your hips and your back, and your entire body is going to be affected if the foundation of your body cannot work like it's supposed to. Mm-hmm. And so all we want is for people to understand this cascading effect that not caring about what your feet are doing and letting them get destroyed for the sake of fashion or for the sake of whatever it is by wearing this footwear does have further reaching effects on how you age, right? Like this is, we just have to make the connection for people because I think if they're given good information, they make better choices. Yeah, and a lot of times, like, this underlying history of it all kind of helps put things in perspective when you know yeah. why things... like Because a lot of people just look at, at things in, in current times, like, well, this is the way it is right now. But they don't look at, like, okay, well, why... Why, why did we get this? here? How did we get here? Why did we get here? What are the multiple different reasons why we got here? Um, and are those reasons legitimate in today's society when we know a bunch more stuff? Like, when we, <laughs> we, know, yeah. we know a bunch more stuff today... Um, so are these reasons that, that people thousands of years ago wore these things to distinguish themselves from, from like lower class people in society? Are these, still are these relevant? reasons still relevant? And are they still subconsciously shaping our, our, um, our reasons for, for wearing them in, in this like weird, deeply like passed on um, cultural kind of phenomenon that, that's happened? So I think like I want to talk about a few different examples 
that will help shape the the argument too for for functional versus like uh, fashionable footwear. Well, I think the, one of the biggest things. Sorry to interrupt. Is we need to make health fat. We need to make health fashionable. Yeah. Right. We need to make it so that having very good functional feet that 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 work properly that can bring you for the rest of your life without stopping you from being able to be active or or getting stuck in pain or whatever it is. We need to make that fashionable, right? So that when we look at these weird heels, it's like smoking. Smoking used to be cool. Everyone used to do it and no one really thought much of it. Now we know that smoking destroys your body and it creates things like cancer. Like it's, it is, it is not up for discussion. Like we know for a fact smoking is terrible mm-hmm. for your body. And unless you don't give a shit about your health, you're going to try and not smoke. We need to make, we need to bring fashion, fashion footwear into the realm of smoking where everyone does it now. But when people understand the consequences, you look at people wearing heels and you're like, ooh, I don't know if that person knows what's up with those shoes. You know, we got to bring health. We got to make health fashionable and change people's perspective of fashion. Yeah, because if if we if we see that fashion is the big driver in why people are wearing these types of shoes, then we've exactly that. We've got to redefine what what fashionable means. Yeah. Um, for the good of people's health. So, yes. so, I mean, but what's what's very interesting is that, like, here's a couple of examples. The Poulains or Krakows, they were they were those pointy toes that they used to wear. Okay. Pointy toed shoes. Uh, but again, they became popular in the 15th century and again, highly associated with like higher class people. Um, so th- that's one example. If you look at Gita's Japanese clogs or flip-flops, a sandal that elevated uh, that was elevated with a wooden base off the ground, but they really changed the way you walk. But again, highly associated with fashion in, uh, in Japan. Now, there's a couple examples of more examples of these, but when you look at other examples, so the Openak, they were peasant shoes, traditionally worn in Eastern Europe, um, leather woven again. So that's a common theme, very soft, moldable, adaptable foot, sure. uh, but again, worn by peasants. So it's almost like wood is an indicator of non-functional fashion and leather, supple, thin, allows sensory input is an indicator of functional, like peasantry yeah. footwear, but uh, functional. Exactly. Like bass shoes, again, they, these were worn in, in Russia, um, Eastern Europe, but they were wor- they were woven out of like uh, tree fibers and like like a basket almost, but very like a soft tree fiber that was huh. made. But they were designed specifically to fit your shoes. But again, they were worn by uh, the poor, the peasants, and the slaves. So it, it's very interesting that the poor, the peasants, and the slaves wore these like quote unquote better shoes that allowed their feet to do better stuff because they happen to be the people that were working all day again. And they had to walk. Yeah. You know? And and I just one more little note because it's a funny name, Pampudis. <laughs> Where's that from? From from Ireland. But the same thing. It's a single piece of rawhide leather wrapped around the foot and stitched together, and it was traditionally worn by by more workers and things like that. Yes, um, Ireland. I gotta so, find me some Pampudis. Yeah, exactly. But again, that that theme is just kind of throughout, and it's very interesting. The the poor people were the the better footwear for their health and the the wealthier the the higher class wore these um non-functional to the point of like extreme in many cases um yeah so like so <laughs> that's been going on for thousands of years which is crazy it's just it's just really crazy because if you look at if you like uh fast forward to today it's like well there's these shoes that that will cost you like designer shoes um probably the most extreme cases of that but these are the ones that cost you thousands yeah. tens of thousands of dollars like a pair of prada heels that cost you like 5 grand yeah. and they just you're literally paying to destroy your feet and not be able to move like a human yeah so it's like why are you wearing those and, and again it's probably linked to back to the status thing it's like yeah. hey i'm wearing and it is it's, it's like, still in the back it, of the it's, mind it's not hard to see that you ask somebody like you ask somebody who wears those like why and it's purely status 
<laughs> it's like because these are these. It's Enough because people... they cost this amount. Because 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 uh, people know when I wear these that that they're this amount of money. Exactly. They're made by and they're made by this company, which is like known as this high class uh, company, um, fashionable company. And because models wear these, who are who are of highest fashion sense. So it's like to this day, the same reasons why people wear them are the same reasons why people thousands of years ago wore them. Um, and it's just like. Yeah, it's just very, very deeply ingrained. So I always love that you you watch the you watch fashion shows or you see clips of fashion shows sometimes, and the odd time you'll get a girl that just starts to get stanky leg on the runway. It just starts to gets the wobbles. And you're like, oh no, oh no, and it looks like she's gonna snap her ankle in half. And it's like these girls have literally practiced and mastered the art of walking in these extremely weird pieces yeah. of footwear um, because it's this weird societal perception of like, ooh, that looks good, or ooh, that's fashion. It's like. It's so weird. It, it really is weird. When you take a step back and you look at just humans in general, we're these very weird creatures that, you know, no other animal wears shoes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that's worth noting. It's like we're the only animals that do it. And we have we do it in this very weird way where it's like, it's. I mean, it's easy to understand. I think talking about the history of footwear is very important because, like you said, it lets us understand how we got to where we are, how we got to this point where... Some of the footwear we wear just really from a health perspective especially doesn't make sense. And and why don't we get into like more modern footwear now? Because I think the fashion side of things has weaseled its way into modern footwear to where the distinguishment between like functional footwear and fashion footwear is really not that clear. And some of the fashion yeah. features are working their way into quote unquote supposedly functional athletic footwear. And this is where the big problem is nowadays because people think they're buying a good shoe and they don't realize that that's really has a lot of features that damaging fashion footwear kind of has traditionally had, right? Like the yeah. point of the tapered toe box or the heel lift. Like they're all, they might be in there for different reasons, but they're still in there. And, and I think this is where a lot of people are coming into problems. So, so yeah, I mean, th- that's exactly it is like these concepts have made their way into all footwear these days. Yeah. Uh, and now you're starting to see the, the shift a little bit, but if you look at the history of athletic footwear, 1895 um, is one example. So the first shoes made specifically for running and they were made by JW Foster's and sons. And I believe and that's, they, they turned into Reebok Reebok. So, yeah. JW Frosters and Sons, um, they made these shoes that had more grip and traction on the bottom um, for for running. So again, that's that's a pretty good re- like reason for having. I would say like yeah. like so if you're trying to run and they were probably faster, very functional, right? Yeah. So the, so it's like hey, I want to get more traction because I'm I'm a runner, and they made these specifically for runners, and they got popular to the point where. Uh, they got the first contract for the Olympic team uh, in Britain in 1924. So the entire British team was wearing these uh, these J.W. and Foster's and Sons um, more tractioned, spiked footwear, and they did very well in the Olympics. So that's kind of like okay. So there's a good reason for for it. Um, another and, example, and you said 1892, the USA Rubber Shoe Company started yeah. making something similar, and I think they got conglomerated into a company called Keds, which I think everyone has probably heard of. But so it's interesting that 1895, 1892, around the same time, time. they started coming out with a similar kind of concept of put rubber on the bottom of your foot to give you more traction or spikes or whatever it is. Um, But I, I, you know, Uh, I'm sure those shoes were very functional. You could twist, bend, move them. They were just like an exoskeleton to enhance performance by giving traction. Yeah, and it was like an example of like different materials. Like, okay, rubber is now being made, uh, be, being used for the um, for the soles. 
So that's kind of these, these rubber companies all got in on the game. Uh, yeah. There's the Converse Rubber Shoe Company in 1921. They actually um, they actually started. So I think maybe this is where it started to, to change. Is these um, you know in the early 1900s, uh, Converse hired basketball player Chuck Taylor to to sell uh, to help sell these Converse All Stars um, and promoted them as specifically a basketball shoe. So they said uh, these shoes are really good for basketball. Uh, Chuck Taylor wears them; he endorses them. Um, they they go up your ankle and they support your ankle, which is really good for basketball and preventing injuries and, and better for performance <laughs> and things like that. Yeah. So so that's where they they started getting these athletes and like you know can you help us endorse this? This is mm-hmm. good for athletics and maybe this is kind of what started to spark things and then you know at a similar time in um there was adolf dassler in germany who created adidas but um established them as like the leading athletic shoe manufacturer um to the point where in 1936 um they kind of exploded and um uh, many different Olympic teams were wearing them at that point, and they were selling over 200,000 pairs a year before World War II even um, as, like, athletic shoes. So, I mean, but athletic shoes back then, still pretty, you know, if you even if you look at all those examples, like, you know, Well, flat, even Chucks, like yeah. Chuck Taylors. I know you've worn Chuck Taylors. I used to love them, but yeah. then I realized they're just, like, they're way too narrow. <laughs> yeah. And I realized this before we even got on foot, foot health, the whole foot health side of things, because... Well, I worked at a shoe store and I would always say like, okay, listen, you got to buy like two sizes bigger in this. Um, it's just what you got to do because they're just so narrow. So you need to go to like clown size shoes to fit your foot in there. And I think that was a a good first step where it was like a, obviously the rubber could be a lot thinner. I think Chucks are like one of the most iconic shoes and I and that really has so much potential. You could make a functional Chuck and, and I would, that was, that would be all I wear, right? A thin rubber sole and some canvas wrapping your foot. Um and I think it was just like that was a pretty good first mm-hmm. step in athletic footwear, right? There's obviously things that could have been done better, but um, yeah, I think that really we, we got to get back to where the initial incentive was with something like a Chuck Taylor, and that was like 1921. That was a good a good while ago, right? That's almost like a hundred years ago. Yeah, so the it's crazy, incen- like you said, the the incentive should be to, I mean, increase athletic performance or what it, like you got to name your incentive and then build a yeah. shoe according to that but i think it's gotten far away from that where and again the the interlacing of fashion has creeped its way into these athletic shoes as well where it's like well those shoes might be better for what they're meant to be for but they don't look at it as nice as these shoes yeah and also these shoes are more expensive and these athletes are wearing them and they're almost like a status symbol to wear. So I'm going to wear these shoes and not that shoes. Yeah. So it's like, okay, well, now we've got back to the fashion thing where it's like you're wearing those shoes for a specific reason. And the reason is probably not what you think it is. It's probably these these deeply ingrained patterns and these deeply ingrained concepts of, of, of wearing things for other purposes uh, to show something about you in, in society. I think it's a, it's a part of some, some For some people, it is. Some people, it isn't. Yeah. But as a global concept, I think it is, it's deeply there. For sure. And that, I think that's a big fallacy, too, what you mentioned with the pro athletes. Because, you know, if you look at LeBron, LeBron James and he wears Nike basketball shoes, so you're like, okay, he's a pro athlete, makes million dollars a year, uh, millions of dollars a year, and he's a, an elite athlete. So what he's wearing must be good for your feet. So I'm going to wear those shoes. All it takes is one quick look at what LeBron's mangled feet look like, and you see the consequences of wearing shoes that are not designed for human feet, especially if you got big feet, right? LeBron, basketball, like look at Shaq's feet. I did a post about Shaq's feet and it blew up because it's so crazy what has happened to his foot 
over time from wearing shoes that, you know, and these guys have huge contracts with Nike. You would think that Nike would make a shoe tailored to their foot that wouldn't destroy and compress their foot. Mm-hmm. So just from strictly from a performance standpoint, it's like, who gives a shit what they look like? I want to perform well, yeah. right? Like the... I don't think people make helmets for fashion reasons. You make it functionally to protect your skull from skull fractures when you smash someone in a football game, right? Like we need to look at footwear very differently. And I think that's another thing. People, this myth of, oh, I need a shoe for every purpose. It's like, I need a shoe for basketball. I need a shoe for running. I need a shoe for this and that. It's like, people always ask me, what's a good basketball shoe? It's like, well, a good basketball shoe is just like any other shoe. It's a piece of footwear used to protect your foot. Yeah. Right, and this whole fallacy, this whole myth of I need a high top shoe to stop my ankle from spraining is so whack. It's like where are people, your hips and your ankles are plenty capable of stopping themselves from rolling and and blowing out the joints. A shoe it's is not, not going to protect you from doing that. No. So I think we need to, we really need to kind of reel in and kind of clear the air on footwear. You don't need a shoe for every purpose, right? Your walking shoe, your running shoe, have the potential of all being. You can use one shoe for everything. Mm-hmm. Right, like maybe you need to use cleats if you're playing football or something like that. But we need to get away from the concept of I need a shoe for every individual activity that I do. Um, and your shoe shouldn't fundamentally, your shoe shouldn't change. Like a lot of shoes are actually decreasing your performance, even to the point of like just just normal gait. And we've seen this throughout history too, where like you say, those people were being carried around um, by peasants because they, they actually <laughs> couldn't walk normally. But, but if I, I read a good do- article by Dr. Dr. Ross, Rossi and yes, William he, was Rossi. Saying, he was saying that like, he was making the argument is natural gait and you define what natural is just, you know, ideal gait that, that you'd see in, in humans who have, um, ideal biomechanics and specifically who haven't been, um, affected by footwear over time, like tribal societies, etc. Yeah. But is natural gait impossible with shoes or with with shoes that we currently have yeah and he made the argument like the fit that's one thing the weight of them the heel that's in them the flexibility issues the decreased sensation that the thickness has in the sole the concavity and the direction of the last where it points your foot in a direction that's not natural and the toe spring these are all things that show up in most shoes and all of these things combine to make just walking very very difficult to do naturally right yeah they're all obstacles to optimal gait yeah so <laughs> that's so, a lot which of obstacles. is weird right and so i think thinking back to what is actually good for functionality perform performance um and just being like healthy we need to re- rethink all of this and we need to know how we got here why we got here and we yeah. need to have more options we really do because it's like, okay, great, where do I get these shoes? And there's some great companies on the market these days, and we you know, we go through a lot of them, right? And but, they can still improve. Like, I still, still wear some of their footwear, and it's like, these need to be wider. or uh, the like, yeah. And that's why, like, eventually, in 2020, we're going to knuckle down and commit to creating a piece of footwear. Because really, all it is, is what? how can we make an affordable, high-quality piece of material that covers the foot and fits well, that is accessible to people and that they can use as their everyday footwear. And it's going to be like a base principle. We need something to protect people's foot. So it has to be resistant to abrasion, has to be resistant to allowing cuts to happen. It has to be a temperature barrier to protect people's feet from either hot or cold surfaces. And when you pare down all of that and you look from a strictly functional point of view, how like this is literally a treatment tool, right? This is how you unshoe your feet to the point where you're allowed to basically be barefoot 
with as little interruption of sensory input from you on the ground and zero interruption of natural toe splay and natural foot widening, natural foot articulation in terms of all the joints. Um, and then the struggle is just how do you make it? It also has to... How do you let get people to be able to stomach what it looks like in terms of making it visually not look like a sock? Because yeah. it's really, it really, you're creating a glove for the foot, right? But yeah. how do you do it in a way that uses minimal materials of high quality that can last at least two years of regular use? I think that's a good benchmark, right? Mm. And that could be priced under $100. And this is really, this is the yeah, FC 1.0, right? It's like, this is what we're going to create. And it's going to be, uh, it's not going to be easy, but it needs to be done and no one else is doing it. So And it, yeah, and you need to take these these concepts in mind. Like the, the fashion thing does, because as we've seen, Fashion is is not going anywhere, right? So it has to, like, say, look, like, look the part, look acceptable. People need to 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 like it, and that's yeah. just a, just for use of anything. But right? part of people liking it is to tell them what the purpose of this thing is, right? Is like literally disrupting and changing the tide of mm. this is why we think of footwear in this respect and what they look like right now, and this is what we need to be going to. So you almost create the people that are going to wear these initially are going to be an individual tribe of basically weirdos at the start, and it will be, I think it'll be good because it's, you don't want to appeal to just making something that looks like everything else, but you also don't want to be so strange that only the fringe weirdos wear it, right? So it's that's going to be the battle, and and I think it'll be a good way to stimulate a conversation of why are you wearing those those look kind of different it's like well i'm wearing them because i care about how my feet function and i'm having problems with my feet and this is what i use i'm, I'm not people aren't gonna be wearing these fc 1.0s in a business meeting or in like a, a court of law or something like that they might wear their shoes in those their, their traditional fashion shoes in those areas but this is their escape to where when i walk the dog i wear these when i go for um you know, when I move around or I train in the gym, I wear these. This is my foot rehab by just covering my foot with zero interruption. I think the most important by far um, people to get hold of would be children uh, wearing yes, them. Yes, that's because, huge. Um, there's there's something to be said about, hey, I've worn uh, here. My, my feet are this way because I've, you know, worn this pair of shoes over time. And, you know, there's a corrective element to to wearing a pair of functional footwear. But mm-hmm. if you can bypass that and get at somebody before they've put themselves through 40 years of, yeah. of a foot abuse, that is way more powerful. So I think it's like getting to parents and getting to, getting them thinking this way will be very, very important. Because if you put all of the... Because if kids are wearing these or anything like them, if kids are, are living more of a barefoot lifestyle, they're not going to run into nearly as much of these issues. It's going to affect all, a lot of other areas upstream. For sure. So, because one one thing that, one of the articles I was reading, is they likened wearing shoes as children to almost like, again, it, it just it starts that early, and they start wearing these shoes, and it's also in a period where they're rapidly growing. So, what they were noting, these podiatrists, this podiatrist group was that like, there's almost this like mild form of like foot binding that starts at an early age because sure. we're putting our children in shoes. They're growing out of them. We're not making sure they fit right. This is a period where their feet are naturally wanting to grow and they're yeah. also trying to learn how to use their feet at this critical age. And we're being disrupted like right away. And you see these kids with these clunker shoes and they hardly know how to walk normally because of all these factors we just listed because they're being put in these same style of shoes for, at like age three or two. And like affordability is a big factor. Okay, like when I was younger, I loved shoes. I, I, you know, shoes are like this expression of what you care about, or, or it's like a, it's, it's like, 
it's clothing, right? You wear a certain kind of clothes because you want to fit in or you want to appeal to the crowd or you're just trying to fit in when you're a kid in high school. So when you have the cool newest shoe, you know, people are like, oh, those are cool shoes. So you feel like you get you get a um, a good bump of like dopamine from people saying, oh, those are cool shoes, man. So, but when I was a kid, like you go into a shoe store and you're like, I want those shoes. And your parents are like, those are way too friggin' expensive, right? Like mm-hmm. we, you're literally only gonna have these shoes for six months. I can't, we can't afford to buy you these shoes every six months. So from a kid's point of view, you're right. Number one, it's hard to fit shoes for kids because how do you know when they're too small? They're too small when literally the kid starts to complain that the foot is being jammed up so hardcore, right? You're not there measuring their foot every week and being Mm -hmm. like, okay, now these shoes are officially too small. And the amount of shoes you have to buy for growing feet, that sucks on the wallet. So, you know, one thing with the FC 1.0 is we're going to make it so that we're going to rethink how shoes are sized. So it's not like five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. There is a, whether it's even numbers or whether it's letters or whatever it is, but one piece of footwear will have built-in expansion patches so that your the piece of footwear will expand as the foot grows to a certain limit threshold. And I almost want it to be so that, you know, obviously there's a lot of thought to go into this, but if expansion zones had like this color thing where if it expanded to a certain level, a color shows, parent mm-hmm. can be like, I see that orange stripe on your on your shoe. That's too small for you now. And then, so we're going to mail in these one, FC 1.0s to the company that makes them, and they're going to give us 50% off a new pair. That's a new size for you. And those materials can be recycled. Like, this is obviously perfect world. I don't know if all this is realistic, but these are, like, why that can happen. That can happen mm. with enough. And I think it brings a good point up, even with footwear, on the concept of the FC 1.0 is, right now, the big footwear companies have this big toss-up where it's like, okay, I'm Reebok. I, I have to choose either an allegiance to my investors or I have to choose an allegiance to my customers. Why don't you make the customers the investors, right? So that people don't invest in shares of a company. They show they invest in a company by purchasing the product, and that's who the allegiance is to. It's I, you know, as a company owner, I want to make something that's good for both investors and customers because that's the same person. Mm-hmm. So I think it's very powerful. But you're right. Like kids' footwear needs to be better. There aren't any good alternatives. If you take, um, you know, a size ten foot and you take a size five foot. The same heel lift essentially is is significantly creates a bigger ramp with a kid's foot, right? The shorter the foot is, that same ramp height makes you angled way more forward. So, so many kids are walking around on these steep ramps, contributing to quad dominance, contributing to, like you said, if a shoe's rigid, kids literally don't even know how to, they're supposed to be developing kind of this pattern of recognizing their feet and using their feet. And at that same time, they're being put in footwear that completely disrupts that. So, it's, it, it is huge. It's we are very, disrupting their, their motor development. Yeah, we're handicapping their Primarily. movement and growth. <laughs> yeah, it's it's crazy. By, by what we put on, realizing on their feet. So, so why don't we talk about um, back to kind of the history of footwear? So we talked about 1936. Um, that's a badass name, Adolf Dassler, um, Adidas. Like, it's, that was mm-hmm. a good choice of name. Um, but let's go to 1970s because this is when the running boom started, and this is when some major developments in footwear um, came out particularly through uh, Bill Borman, Phil Knight, when, when you know, innovations with, the, with good intentions started to result in unintended consequences and have brought us to this extreme today where literally people are walking around on huge air bubbles that they mm-hmm. think are good for their feet, but are actually doing a massive disservice. And actually, I, I truly think that they're injuring a lot of runners, right, based on how that modifies how people run. So 19, uh, what was it? 1972 was the introduction basically of a uh, heel cushion shoe, right? Which is 1972 till now, that's not very long ago. 
That's no. less, less than 50 years. Well, and even if you're thinking about like what we just talked about before that, like the early 1900s, that's also just, just around the corner, just over 100 years, too. That's a spec, right? What's Homo erectus? 1.8 million, I think, years? I'm not sure about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Sorry, I shouldn't ask that question. I researched that because yeah. I wanted to make sure I had the right number. 1.8 million years. 40,000 years, potentially, is the oldest footwear based on when archaeologists can see our little toes starting to shrink. So they assume that that's related to when we were starting to put bags around our feet. So the um, the smaller toes started to shrink. And then even 40,000 years, in the grand scheme of Homo erectus, 1.8 million, that's 2% of our existence we've been potentially wearing footwear. Mm-hmm. And up until about whatever it was, 500 years ago, was always functional footwear. And and then it started to diverge in terms of fashion. So we haven't been wearing shoes for that long. The shoes that we wore for most of the time was functional footwear to protect the foot. And now we've gotten into this performance realm where now we seem to think that we know better than 1.8 million years of evolution and can design a better foot through the footwear that we're putting on top of it. And I think that's like... <laughs> goes to show the arrogance of humans where they're like, we know better than evolution. We can make a better foot. It's like, no, nah, man, the foot is a highly evolved and a highly, a very high-tech piece of equipment. And by putting shit on top of it, you literally decrease its ability to exert its full potential in terms of technology that it has. That's an interesting point is that could you, is that is that potential uh, there to create something that actually improves your foot performance? And maybe it is. But it's way off right now because, yeah. like, you can you, you, like, right you can like cherry pick examples of that. Okay, it's like, can you make something that allows the foot to function better than an actual foot? Well, not if it's jamming your foot in. Like, there's some basic things. <laughs> yeah. Like, well, well, we're way, if if that's a, pot- a possibility, we're way off right now. Yeah. But we're being told that we're not. Way, we're being told otherwise. Yeah. Right. And I think like. The be- I think you can enhance the potential of the human foot. And it, the biggest thing you can enhance it with is traction. Yeah. Right? When you play a sport, when you play on a field sport, I'm not saying going barefoot on a field sport is better than wearing cleats. All I'm saying is the cleats we're making right now are terrible. And they're yeah. detracting from the performance, especially at the elite level. So let's just make a better way of putting some sort of covering. Like we have insane material science now. We have yeah. materials that... You know, I'm sure materials out there that you could cover your foot with and you can walk up walls like a gecko, right? Like we know how to make high-tech materials. Why don't we take this material science industry and apply it to making an exoskeleton for the foot that gives zero functional inhibition, but gives you a variety of options in terms of covering your foot with things to protect them from sharp things, protect them from temperatures. All yeah. these things give you traction, give you grip. Because if traction is what we want, then why are the other factors that are negative um, built into the shoe? It doesn't make sense. Yeah, like getting traction should never come at the expense of foot function. No, it's uh, you're 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 getting a one point positive and giving and also bringing with it a ten point negative. Like it yeah. just doesn't make sense. Um, so seventy two, Bill Borman, Phil Knight, tried to come out with a solution. You know, the run, running boom happened in the in the 1970s. So everyone started running. They saw running as like jogging. It started with jogging and then they started running. And everyone was like, okay, if you want to be fit, you got to run. And it was like this. I think it really was a primal connection with um, this endorphin bump that you get because we're designed to run. We're adapted to run. We've run for a lot of our existence. And, and it was you ran to hunt. And so the body has these reward systems to say, you're doing something good when you run because this might result in you getting food and continuing mm-hmm. to survive. Um, so we're going to give you this these reward chemicals. And everyone got that and was like, oh, this is amazing. And then everyone started to break down, right? Because 
I think it was probably mostly because we didn't have the hardware requirements at the ankle and the hip to be able to exhibit optimal running form. We didn't have the strength and the stability to actually run like humans are supposed to run. So Phil Knight and Barman say, okay, everyone's breaking down. Everyone's running. This is a good thing. Let's make shoes that buffer the impacts of each step. So they put cushioning in the heel, which, you know, that's a well-intentioned solution to a problem that they saw. Mm -hmm. The problem is there was unintended consequences of putting cushioning on top of the foot. One of which is you remove a lot of the sensory input coming into the foot. Second of which, and I think this is the most harmful one, is now you allow humans to run in ways that we were never adapted to run. You let them smash their heel into the ground first every single step they take, and they don't have that pain anymore because they got a little air bubble or a bit of cushioning at the heel. And there's also no natural governor to tell you how much or how little you should be running at this current moment in time. Yeah. Because you could put, you could go extreme with that and put it all in the air. Uh, all the air bubbles you want, but it's like, how much is this person's physical structure supposed to be running right now based on their, every, all these other things, like their yep. mobility, their strength. Um, so you don't have that anymore, which is also causing further injuries upstream. And it's all at the, all in the name of not feeling the ground as much at, uh, at contact. That's, that's kind of where it is. And again, it, it kind of made sense. Um, it kind of broke, it broke the check engine light. I think that's a good yeah. way. Of, I thought about this the other day. It broke the check engine light, which is if you don't run well, your foot hurts. Or if you heel strike, your heel hurts. It took that away and allowed people's engines or, or you know, the parallel to that is their knees to blow up five years down the road. So it delayed the onset of when there was a, a trigger to say that something's wrong. Mm-hmm. And it significantly increased the severity of the consequences when that trigger comes up. So instead of getting heel pain the first time you heel strike and changing how you run to use your Achilles tendon to absorb that impact force, you're all of a sudden allowed to slam away at your knees without really getting pain. You get these little like nags or little incidences of pain, but you don't get any major stuff until five years down the road or 10 years down the road. You're like, I don't know what's going on. My knees are really killing me. Do an x-ray. There's no more cartilage left in your knee. You've literally worn through the, the cartilage lubricant in your knee joint over the past 10 years because you've been able to run in a way that you haven't, that you're not supposed to. Well, it just shifted the, it shifted things from the ground to upwards upstream to the knee and the low back. Like those are the, probably the two main uh, things I treat for for runner for runners is there is your you know your, your, the lower leg stuff that that always comes in but but knees and low backs right so yeah and I think it's like it distracts away from the conversation now is oh what's the best shoe is this shoe better than this shoe will this shoe make me run better and it really takes away from you know we talk about footwear because it's a big element in 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 part of this whole foot problem epidemic. But that's the wrong question to be asking. It's like, how are you running? How do, do you have joints that move like joints are supposed to move at your ankle and your hip particularly? Do you have the ability to organize your body in a way that you stabilize your joints so that your muscular system is absorbing uh, the impact forces of running and not your skeleton? Do you have those things in place? The shoe is a, a very secondary factor. Like it shouldn't even be part of the initial conversation, but that seems to be what people are fixating on. And if we extrapolate that out, further than running because running um it is is are you moving ideally are you moving uh with quality and have you developed uh, a movement capacity that's allowed you to stay relatively injury free um and we talked about the kids is like right away if we're putting something that is 
inhibiting or altering the way we naturally develop um, our motor function, that's not going to be a good thing. And so we see that in running, but we also see it in general. Yeah, It's just movement in general should be uninhibited. And, and we know we have more feedback when we have more stability and we have all these things when we are more connected with the ground and more barefoot. So, so why are we doing these things that impede that? Mm-hmm. So yeah. It's and I mean, it just makes sense. Wear shoes that look like they're shaped like feet, right? Like most, I had an interesting conversation when I was in the UK with uh, Sebastian Barr, who's the um, chief guy at Joe Nimble, right? Or, or Barr Footwear, his dad started the company. But he said, you know, it's it's much cheaper and much easier to make a shoe that's symmetrical, right? So that finishes in a point and comes out evenly symmetrically on both sides. That's just, it's easier to manufacture shoes like that because last can be made on a um on a lathe and be symmetrical but the foot is not symmetrical right your big toe is longer than your little toe if you cut your foot in half it's not symmetrical one side is different than the other so it's way more expensive to make a shoe with an asymmetrical last it's way more expensive to make a shoe that looks like a human foot but i think if people understood what that means um and you align the interest of a of a company that spends most of their money, they spend a lot of money on marketing, right? Look at the breakdown of the economies of, of footwear manufacturing. Because, uh, you know, if you're going to make a shoe, you got to understand what is the whole system like in terms of how shoes are made. And the amount of money that is spent on marketing, the amount of money that is spent on things not related to making a good shoe or researching a good shoe, um, it's just, it's crazy. Like a $200 shoe might only cost about $30 in terms of material costs. Mm-hmm. And there's obviously a bunch of middlemen and taxes and logistics and all that kind of stuff. Um, so it doesn't mean the company's pocketing that other 170. But if you take out a lot of the inefficiencies and the friction in the world of footwear and you simplify shoes to just protect your foot, there is so much potential to spend, for example, $50 on a shoe instead of 30 and only charge $100 for that shoe instead of 200 Like you just got to align interest and, and look at it objectively and be like, okay, all this stuff's bullshit. We don't need that stuff. We're going to go directly to the people that want to purchase this footwear and we're going to just give people value and make it very transparent so that no one's making a ton of money off these shoes. You're just accumulating people that want a better product and showing them where all the money is going and creating something that everyone can use and that you know is good for people's feet. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, you know, that's the end mission. 2020 FC 1.0, we're going to design a shoe. We're going to crowdfund the entire process of, you know, saying here's a budget for a, you know, a five or six person team that is going to basically be obsessed for 15 months and basically, for lack of a better term, lock themselves in a house and not come out until they've designed a piece of footwear and in a method for creating it and manufacturing it and getting it to people. And I think uh, it's an interesting challenge. It's definitely a hard one. But um, but yeah, anyway, I think that's probably a good way to kind of wrap things up. So hopefully that gives you guys a good picture of the history of footwear um, and let's, let's everyone realize how we got to where we are now to the point where we're wearing shoes that literally are causing us pain and causing our feet to break down and people seem to think it's worth it. And, you know, we just want people to understand where this came from to acknowledge why they're wearing the shoes they're wearing, right? Maybe you are wearing it as a status symbol, but you need to like, that's fine, but just know why you're wearing it, mm-hmm. right? I think that's the biggest message that we're trying to get out is know why you're wearing the shoe, know the consequences of wearing this type of shoe. And understand the fundamentals of how you can unshoe your feet. If you do choose to wear that footwear, make sure you're doing other stuff in the background to offset those effects and make sure that when you're 70, you don't have feet that look like they just went through a shredder and can't even let you walk around or do the activities you want to do. That's and just know, thing. yeah, just know that there's, there's multiple reasons why shoes are the way they are today. And it's not necessarily because they're the best for you. 
Yeah. So it's all of the other things that we try to paint a picture of in today's podcast that that shaped the way shoes are currently made, developed, and sought mm-hmm. after. So. Yep, you got it. All right, thanks for listening, guys. Stay tuned for the FC 1.0 um, in 2020. We'll kind of be giving updates as we build up to that. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk to you guys next week.